It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Kathy Diamond back again in the lovely month of May on behalf of the Eleanor London Code St. Luke Public Library with my short monthly book talk. I hope that you listeners are all well and enjoying the spring weather and the newly shortened curfew hours. The book that I'd like to talk to you about this afternoon is called Transcendent Kingdom by a young Ghanaian-American writer by the name of Ya'a Giyasi. This is Miss Giyasi's second novel, following her critically acclaimed best-selling debut novel, Home Going, which was published in 2016. At age 28, Gifty, the name of the narrator in Ms. Gayasi's new novel, Transcendent Kingdom, thinks that she has things figured out. She is a sixth year PhD candidate in neuroscience at Stanford University. She is studying the neural circuits of reward-seeking behavior. It is a path chosen in large part to make sense of the traumas of her childhood back in Alabama. The death of beloved older brother Nana from opioid addiction and the crippling depression of their mother in its wake. For years, Gifty has kept people at a distance, more attached to lab mice than colleagues and partners. I've seen enough in a mouse to understand transcendence, holiness, redemption, she insists. But the past is never far beyond, behind, even in wide open California. I could never shake my ghosts, never, Gifty thinks. But the future feels limitless. Having decided that, and these are Gifty, the narrator's words again, nothing but blazing brilliance would be enough to prove her worth, she dreams of running her own Ivy League lab, winning a Nobel Prize, curing addiction and depression, and everything else that ails us. Some large ambitions this girl has. And the creator of this narrative, this fictional narrator, Ms. Yagayasi, knows all about that ambition herself. In her acclaimed 2016 debut novel, Home Going, which followed eight generations of descendants from 18th century Ghana to present day America. It was published when she was just 26 years old. The word ambitious was used by critics and reviewers countless times. Not that the author is denying it. Particularly when I was younger, I think I had that similar sense of feeling like I had something to prove. Clearly, some of that has fallen away by now. Whereas Gayasi's debut novel was epic in scope, Transcendent Kingdom is smaller. 
It focuses delving into illness and grief, science and faith, universal issues played out within complicated bonds of one family. The author says, from the start, I knew I wanted to get deep into a single consciousness in a way that I had not been able to do with Homegoing, her first novel. It was my first time writing anything of a sustained length in the first person. It had its challenges, the author continues, but I feel like it stretched me in nice ways too. At the heart of this novel, then, is the relationship between Gifty and her aging mother, not so aging as I'm getting more aging, she's 68 years old, the mother, who, suffering another debilitating bout of depression, has come to stay with Gifty, moving into her student apartment in Stanford in California. After her husband has left and her son has died, Gifty's mother, who is unnamed in the story, only referred to in Gifty's childhood journals as the Black Mamba in her coded language, which he wrote her diary as a young girl, but otherwise the mother does not have a name. But as Gifty's mother struggled to make sense of their shrunken family, first we were four, then we were three, and now we were just two, Gifty thinks, she never fully adapted to the ways of America. The two of us back then, mother and daughter, we were ourselves an experiment, Gifty thinks. The question was, she continues, and has remained, are we going to be okay? That's the question that Gifty has all through the novel. The author of the story, who is now a a, a young 31 years old, came to America from Ghana, as her fictitious narrator does, as a young child. But she was the daughter of an academic father and a, a nurse mother. She did have an upbringing where the family moved because of her father's studies until he received his professorship and that was in Alabama finally. Wherever the family went in America on their travels, they reached out to others in the Ghanaian diaspora. I think the relationship, Ms. Gayasi says, between America and Ghana is something that I will always be interested in. So it was nice to explore it in this contemporary setting in the book in in Transcendent Kingdom versus the longer scope of history of her first novel. And like Gifty, the narrator of this story, Ms. Gayasi was raised within a predominantly white Pentecostal church in Alabama and later did study at Stanford. Alabama and California are probably two of the places that were most formative for me, says Ms. Gayasi. So combining them in one book gave the author this rich landscape in which to explore questions about religion. 
And she says, which I think are felt and experienced very differently depending on where you live in this country, meaning in America. And it's true because Alabama would be considered part of the Bible Belt. And yet when the narrator of this novel, the young Gifty, goes from Alabama to Harvard and then to Stanford, she's encountering very different intellectual and religious worlds. So in the novel, the Bible Belt informs much of Gifty's understanding, at least childhood understanding, of America's rituals, of class, of religion, of, of belief. Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama specifically, where the novel is set, is where Gifty's mother has to work long hours as a home aide for often blatantly racist patients and where she finds refuge in the First Assemblies of God Church, which has also happens to be a white church, just as the author's family did similarly. It is where the brother, Nana, in the novel, who is a gifted athlete, achieves temporary salvation on the basketball court before an ankle injury leads him to an addiction to painkillers and later to stronger drugs. Nana, this is the name of the brother, couldn't remember Ghana, and I had never been, our narrator Gifty thinks. Southeast Huntsville, Northern Alabama was all we knew. The physical location of our entire conscious lives. Homo sapiens, Yagyasi writes at the opening of the book, is the only animal who believed that he had transcended his kingdom, meaning the biological classification of the animal kingdom, and thus the title of the book, Transcendent Kingdom, or at least one of the possibilities of the title of the book. We humans like to think of ourselves as beings who are more than our meat and electricity and plumbing. We think of ourselves as beings with souls. And Gifty, the narrator of Transcendent Kingdom, is trying to work out exactly what our souls might be. She is interested in questions of the soul because she is a graduate student studying neuroscience and thinking about what makes human beings work is part of her job. But she chose her profession, she tells us, less because she thinks the work is important and helpful and more because it was the hardest thing she could think of doing and she craves hard work. So she, remember, grew up in Alabama as the daughter of, a, of Ghanaian, Ghanaian, Ghanaian immigrants. Her brother, as we know, as we find out, has died of an overdose. And at the white evangelical church that her family attends, she overhears parishioners murmur that her brother's opioid addiction was to be expected because their kind does seem to have a taste for drugs. So Gifty has a lot to prove, and she believes, as she tells us in the novel, that nothing but blazing brilliance would be enough to prove it. 
But Gifty is not being entirely honest when she suggests that she does her work purely out of a desire for self-aggrandizement. Her research could have major implications for treating addiction and depression. And as as Gifty's narrative moves back and forth between past and present, it becomes clear that both these issues are very personal for her. Because Gifty's father went back to Ghana when she was very young, she never really knew him. He was unable, as the novel tells us, to bear the weight of America, of being black in America, where he was checked and, and accused of shoplifting three times out of, in four months when he went to Walmart. These things didn't happen to him back in Ghana because in Ghana, the whole country was black. And here in America, especially down in Alabama, things are very different, even in modern day America. At least this is how how Yagasi is writing. So the brother, Nana, developed his opioid addiction after a doctor prescribed OxyContin for a basketball injury to an ankle. And that snowballed into an addiction to opioids. And when he died, Gifty's mother fell into, falls into a profound and debilitating depression that left her in bed for long periods of time. Gifty is 11 years old when this happens. She's sent for the summer to Ghana to stay with an aunt, her mother's sister, while her mother is trying to get herself back to health, to mental health in the States. And there's that one interesting episode where 11-year-old Gifty spends the summer in Ghana and it's a country that's totally foreign to her. She's never been there before and she still finds it very foreign. And by the time she comes back in the fall, her mother is better. Her mother is out of bed and back to working. But Gifty is still there, left alone, she and her mother. As a very people-pleasing child, Gifty is also profoundly pious, religious. That's the way her mother has brought her up. And she believes that God will deliver her family from whatever difficulties and evils they might encounter because as a child, she is still very religious and her faith is still strong. But after the twin blows of her family's tragedy, of her brother dying of this drug overdose, her father, remember, has already left a few years earlier, and when these first incidents of racism, when she hears those, her faith starts to be be shooken and she is caused she has cause now to question all her former beliefs she finds herself searching for new ways of constructing meaning 
And we get all of this through diary entries from the time that she's a young child and she's precocious. She's very smart. She writes, she starts, she has this diary and this diary continues. Originally, she writes the diary entries to God. And as she gets older and as she goes off to college and then to graduate school, she still continues. She calls it a journal and she doesn't necessarily, she's not writing to God. She's not addressing the, the um, entries to God, but she is still searching and she is still looking for meaning. Science, it seems, will provide answers, or if not answers, at least new ways of asking old questions. In this second novel, the author is narrowing her scope after the epic homegoing. This is the story of one specific girl in one specific family. It is interior, psychological, and deeply focused on sifting through the layers of Gifty's mind as she studies and prays and experiments to try to find her way to what lies at the core of human beings. It is a quiet, ruminative, thoughtful story, proceeding through its ideas as carefully and deliberately as cautious scientist Gifty proceeds when she makes her way through an experiment. It inten- its intensity, the intensity of the story, creeps up on the reader slowly so that one finds oneself registering Gayasi's most startling images, for example, that of an egg with its shell dissolved or a mouse with a psychosomatic limp, only after you put the book down and you see them lingering in your mind. The quietness is deceptive because under all the deliberation of the character of our narrator, Gifty, there is much raw emotion and hurt. A family in isolation is a kind of science experiment and Gifty, this neuroscience graduate student at Stanford, our narrator, compares her relationship with her mother to the first bit of laboratory science that she remembers performing back in school. Gifty, and it's when Gifty and her middle school classmates submerge an egg in various solutions and then watch as its shell dissolves and the egg itself swells and shrivels and changes shapes and colors. And this experiment is intended to see, it's the one that many science student, young science students are introduced to with this. As, as this experiment intends to de- demonstrate osmosis, Gifty, Gifty, sorry, Gifty reflects later the central question about her and her mother, just like this egg and what's going to happen to the egg and the changing shapes and colors. Gifty thinks it's just like the relationship between me and my mother. Are we going to be okay? That's the question that Gifty is asking herself throughout the years. She tells us, I didn't want to be thought of as a woman in science or a black woman, particularly in science. And this is what she thinks early on in the novel. 
Nor is she interested in the immigrant cliche of the academically successful child whose striving parents are working hard for her success. Instead, the author builds her characters, Gifty and the others, scientifically, observation by observation, just the same way that the narrator builds her PhD thesis experiment, which is, what's the experiment that Gifty is working on in this lab? And she's almost finished with it when, we, when the book opens. The study of reward-seeking behavior in mice that self-consciously mirrors her brother Nana's struggle with opioids. Gayasi's style here is especially striking compare, when you compare it to her first novel, which was that time-traveling fireworks kind of style in Homegoing, four years, which was published four years earlier. And perhaps readers who read the first novel might miss this sweep of, of history and momentum and many numerous characters that Gayasi achieved in her first novel. But this book, in this book, time is more relative. It, it goes back and forth between Gifty's childhood, Gifty the narrator, and this, the first person narrative voice between her childhood and her brother's death by overdose, between her elite education and her mother's depressions. But that shifting back and forth beautifully captures the rhythms of life. And especially, as Gifty learns, life with a depressed person and the way that the shadows of the past persist in the present. And we have Gifty arriving as an undergraduate at Harvard. This is from the warmth of Alabama to the chilliness of New England, where the combination of the weather and her grief over her brother leads her to a visit to the university's mental health services, where she says, I'm sad, but not terribly, terribly sad, meaning not depressed, dangerously sad, but just sad. And she is given a lamp for treating seasonal affective disorder, depression. But that isn't really the device that she needs to combat Gifty's new situation. She goes through undergraduate, her undergraduate years at Harvard, learning that what she considered natural, uh, her religion is regarded as bizarre and archaic and at Harvard among the elite, in this elite school. That's one shock. And it's also still living with the effects of the trauma of her brother's death. Her father, as I mentioned earlier, has abandoned his family to return to Ghana, so there's no father. Her mother, Gifty's mother, has found her solace, it seems, in religion, but Gifty is unable to find, to, to sustain her belief as she gets older. And interestingly, in the novel, and apparently in the author's own life, her parents, who moved to the American South, didn't choose a black evangelical church, but instead a white one. And you think to yourself, you the reader, that what might a black church have done for the character Gifty and her family if it had been a black church and not a white one? Would the story of their life in America have been different? 
I mean, it's a moot point because this is the way the novel was written. Um, but while her father flees the country in, in how he, he felt humiliation as a black man in America, leaving his wife and children, and then her brother and mother taking more interior flights. This was before her brother dies. Her brother, her brother throws himself into sports, which is not interior, but then when he becomes addicted to, to the opioids, for those agonizing three years of his addiction before his death, he, he reverts to an interior life due to the addiction. Her mother has her religion as her solace. And how does Gifty, young Gifty, how does she respond to America's challenges? She becomes successful. She decides that, as Gifty says, I would always have something to prove and nothing but blazing brilliance would be enough to prove it. Luckily for her, she is brilliant. She is able to succeed academically and she gives this dazzling performance which is sometimes, however, inscrutable to those around her, to her classmates, to her professors, even to her, her boyfriend. She remains elusive. Gifty's relationships, for example, with men are not easy. She, she's always, and, and with women as well, her, her ability to form friendships is not very good. She's always been alone. Her interior world is very large, but she has trouble, and especially after the death of her brother, relating of sharing herself, of opening herself up to anyone else. That just seems to be an impossibility. The exception is the one that she has with her lab partner, who we meet at the very beginning of the book, her lab partner, Han. And this relationship, it comes alive in the story through small details. For example, the way he is described as having his ears redden, his ears turn bright red every time that he and Gifty talk about anything more emotionally fraught than the behavior of the mice in her experiment. And this is a change for Gifty because it's usually people trying to get her to be emotionally more accessible. And here she goes to this lab and she realizes that if she ever tries to make anything, any more conversation with her lab mate than about what's going on with their mice, he's very nervous. She says he probably picked neuroscience to go into and when it came to this lab because he figured he'd never have to deal with emotional women. So, so it's a very good match. Men, though, are not the point of the story. The point of the story is the relationship, really, between mother and daughter. And it is the rich portrait of Gifty's mother, the unnamed mother, other than she's referred to sometimes as the Black Mamba in, in Gifty's diaries. She is a woman who pitches between stoicism and intense vulnerability. And it's the relationship between Gifty and her mother that constitutes the novel's most rewarding experiment. Gifty says, my mother, or she, how she refers to her mother, was a matter of fact kind of woman. Not a cruel woman exactly, but sometimes something close to cruel. And it could be cultural as one reads the book and begins to think. And there's a lovely scene where Gifty and her mother, she's a young girl, and they're standing in front of a mirror 
and her mother is putting on makeup and Gifty is too young to be putting on makeup. But she looks at, at their reflections in the mirror as she stands next to her mother who's getting ready to go to work. And she says to her mother, am I pretty? And her mother turns around and he, she says to her, God made, look what God made. And look what I made, referring to Gifty. And then her mother kisses her own reflection in the mirror and goes off to work. And you think to yourself, wait a minute, what's going on here? But then you realize that it's her mother saying, of course you're pretty. Kiss yourself in the mirror. Learn to love yourself. But in her way, this is the only way she can say it. And again, maybe it's cultural. But this scene, it stands out in one's mind as an interesting scene in a mother-daughter relationship where the mother does love her daughter, but doesn't express it in the kind of way maybe that Gifty understands right away or the kind of way that white Americans would ever do. Transcendent Kingdom traces the story of Gifty, well, back and forth, follows the story of Gifty, her mother, the loss of her brother, as Gifty grows up from childhood to young womanhood. And in the place of the lyricism of her first novel, the author gives us sentences where grace comes from rhythm, such as, I loved Alabama in the evenings when everything got still and lazy and beautiful, when the sky felt full, fat, with bugs. This transcendent kingdom of this Ghanaian, Southern, and American novel is in the end not a Christian one only, or not a Christian one, or a scientific one, but it is the one that two women, Gifty and Mother, create by surviving a difficult environment, difficult circumstances, and still maintaining their primal connection to each other. Ms. Gayasi has established herself as one of the most insightful and original among the new generation of authors in America. Just embarking on her path as a young writer today. Thank you all for listening and wishing you a happy and healthy month. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.